All right, Alexander, let's uh, do an update as to what is going on in Ukraine. And, uh, you, you know, if, if you read the Collective West mainstream media, if you listen to, to Alensky, Podoliak, all of these guys, uh, NATO generals, um, you, you, you get the impression that Ukraine is miles away from Melitopol. Uh, about to, to enter Mariupol. Now, I'm not exaggerating either. Uh, they're, they're very clever with their titles. You know, Ukraine breaks first line of defense, uh, is closer now to Mariupol. I mean, these are the titles that, you know, media outlets like Forbes or, uh, or Business Insider, um, uh, the Telegraph, the Telegraph. The Wall Street Journal as yeah. well, You're, of course. Yeah. You know, okay, so, so you did a video on your channel yesterday and... Uh, you talked about the fighting that is taking place specifically in one area, Rabatinia and this area around Rabatinia. Um, I saw Brian Berletic's video on the New Atlas. I saw your video. And uh, both of you are pretty much coming to the same conclusions. And uh, you say something very different than what Zelensky is saying, than what Danilov is saying, um, NATO command, Forbes, Telegraph, Wall Street Journal. What's the truth? Yeah, well, this is this is it, because it is becoming increasingly surreal and we're getting absolutely diametrically opposite accounts now uh, from, you know, different sources. So on the one hand, we get this these stories which are coming from Ukrainian, the Ukrainian authorities, the Ukrainian authorities, what they say is automatically reproduced by the Western media and by Western commentators, and then we get the other sources, which are, you know, people on the Russian side. I mean, I want to stress, they are on the Russian side. We have to say that straight away. But they are very much in contact with Russian soldiers on the ground. And this is the key thing to understand about them. They have been consistently reliable and well-informed about the fighting right from the start of the war. They are often savagely critical of the Russian government, I've never known them at any point to start saying things, you know, to sugarcoating things. On the contrary, when things start to go wrong for the Russian side, they are, you know, they, they become very angry and they talk about it and they make criticisms. So a reliable information from, you know, a, a sources which have proved reliable against others that are not. And let's begin with, the way it started at the start of this week. I mean, first of all, there's this village of Rabotino, which we've been hearing so much about for so many months. On uh, Last week, Ukrainians said that they were on the brink of capturing Rabotino and that the Russians had been pushed back to some buildings in the south. Now, that was true. Everybody at that time, the Russians... Ukrainians, they were saying the same thing. And then out of nowhere, on Monday, Hanna Malyar, who is the deputy prime minister, deputy defense minister of Ukraine, said that Rabotino has been completely captured by Ukraine. And the media, especially in Britain, but to some extent in the United States, started to repeat that, repeated that claim as true. This is despite the fact that Mal Hannah Malia has a record of telling us things in the past which have turned out to be not true. I mean, she claimed, for example, after Bakhmut fell, 
for some weeks. She was saying that the Ukrainians still had uh, positions in Bakhmut that they were still holding on to, and that turned out to be wrong. So, nonetheless, people assumed that what Hannah Malia was saying is true. And then a few days later, we got reports about Ukraine having pierced the Surovikin line. And this appeared all over the place. It started with a reported built sighting. It then started to sort of spread. There was a piece yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, which claimed to be an exclusive, even though when you actually read it, it's not exclusive at all. It's simply what they're all saying. And it's clear again that we're talking about information obtained from Ukrainian sources. Now, the Russians are telling us Rabotino has not been captured by the Ukrainians. The Russians still control the southern part of Rabotino. They, by the way, said that there was another battle for Rabotino only this morning, that the Ukrainians again had tried to capture the village, and they were again thrown back, and that they suffered losses. Um, and they've also said the Surovikin line has not been reached, let alone penetrated. And when you actually read the Wall Street Journal piece, it's quite clear that what's really being talked about is that the Ukrainians have, to some extent, downscaled their attacks on Rabotino. They're no longer really focusing on trying to capture that village. It's proved to be too difficult for them. So they've now tried to transfer the focus to other places, and they're trying to capture, in particular, another village called Verbove, which is well to the east of Rabotino. And this claim to have pierced the defences of the Surovikin line is really about trying to break through and capture Verbove, except, again, Russian reports say that the attempts by the Ukrainians to capture Verbove have been unsuccessful. Now, who do you believe? Well, I have no doubt at all that the Russians are telling the truth. The reason I say that is because the people that I am talking about, not the Russian defense ministry, not Russian officials, but the sort of war, respond war correspondents, the journalists, the reporters from the ground, as I said, they have a record of telling the truth. And I cannot believe that they would simply invent whole battles like the one in Rabotino this morning out of the... Uh, broadcloth, and moreover, what they're saying is consistent with what we know about the course of the offensive overall. So this is what I think has happened. I think that some people in Kiev, in Washington, have been increasingly worried that the offensive has not been going well. They're getting concerned that there's been all this bleak reporting about the progress of the offensive in the media. There have been all these articles that we've talked about in the Wall Street Journal itself, the New York Times, the Washington Post. Washington Post, by the way, has been one of the newspapers that's been covering this less. So that's an interesting fact in itself, by the way. And note that the Washington Post is one of the Places, you know, the, 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 the recent reporting about the supposed Ukrainian successes. I note that the Washington Post is said to be particularly close to the intelligence community in the United States. So anyway, I think there's been concerns about these articles. I think there's been concerns about the fact that 
in Ukraine itself, um, Zelensky's poll ratings are apparently collapsing. I think there's also worries that there's now more and more demand starting to build up throughout the system for some kind of negotiation process to be launched. And there are people both in Washington and Kiev who don't welcome that at all. So the result is that we've now moved from reporting about the actual war where Ukraine is still stuck. It's not been able to capture Rabotino. It's not been able to capture Velbove. It's not cert, not reached yet the Surovikid line itself. So what we're getting instead are new stories which say that Rabotino has been captured. Well, of course, it hasn't been. But then Ukraine took a decision a short time ago prohibiting journalists from the West and indeed even from Ukraine from actually going to the front lines. So there's no direct way to contradict what they're saying, at least on the Ukrainian side. So they're saying that they've captured Robotino. They haven't captured Robotino. They're saying they've penetrated the Surovikin line when in fact they've been trying to capture Verbove. And we're getting these attempts in effect to create a narrative construct for the events of the last week or so, which is not consistent with reality. That's how it looks to me. Yeah, uh, fake it till you make it, as, as we exactly. say in the United States, right? You know, you, exactly. you, you, have, to, you, have, you have to say that you've captured Rapotino, you have to fake everybody into believing that, that you've captured Rapotino, and hopefully, Hopefully you capture it. I, that, that's, I guess, the, the strategy yeah. of, uh, of the Zelensky regime. That's the strategy of, yeah. the, of the collective West mainstream media. I mean, I, I've read that the narrative is kind of like, you know, we're going we're gonna to move now to the flanks and we're going we're gonna to surround Rabotina. We're, we're not going to go straight on through yes. Rabotina. Now we're going to just kind of go around it. Yeah. Know, that's, kind of, that's what I've been reading is the new, yeah. the new brilliant strategy, which is very odd to me because you, you, change, you change your strategy just right in the middle of an, an offensive and you decide to go around something. Uh, that means you can't go directly towards it. So something yes. is, is wrong. Something's not well, going right. What yeah. happens uh, if, when and if, uh, the Ukraine military doesn't capture Rapotine. What then? I mean, the counteroffensive is already a failure. Even yes. if they capture Rapotine, we're talking yeah. about a massive failure. A massive yes. failure. Yes. When you look at a map, forget about you know Forbes saying that Ukraine is getting closer to Melitopol. When you look at a map, you understand that even if Ukraine were to capture Rapotine, we're heading into three months of fighting now. No. This is a failure. Yeah. What happens, Alexander, to the narrative, to the funding, to the mobilization that Ukraine wants to undertake, to the uh, to, to the domestic uh, to, to the domestic sentiment in Ukraine about the the conflict, to to the EU funding, to the Biden White House, the Biden campaign? There's so much at play here. What happens if the, it comes to to light that you know three months into this? We're now heading into into winter, and we did we didn't even capture Rabotino. What then? Well, the short answer is they're not going to say that Rabotino hasn't been captured. It's a small village, four hundred and eighty people before the war, so you just don't talk about it. I mean, that's what's going to happen. It's going to vanish from 
media commentary it already has i mean you so i mean you know the, you, i mean this is one of the problems i mean you know you say you've captured rabotino so you have to pretend that you're advancing beyond rabotino which is why they're attacking in places like verbover and other places and um if you actually look at the map, <laughs> I mean, Rabotina, you would need to go through Rabotina to get to Tokmak, you need to get to Tokmak to get to Melito, Milotopoli, and they're not getting anywhere close to these places. So, but you have to, if, if, you, if you tell one thing which isn't true, then that leads you inevitably to say more things that aren't true as well. It's the nature of lying, to be straightforward about it. So that's what they get. But these are small places, so if it doesn't happen, it's very simple. You stop discussing it. We're going to see a, a, an end to reporting about Rabotina. You know, the, uh, in a few weeks' time, the rains and the mud will start. There'll be the new narrative that um, the offensive will then resume when the ground hardens. By the time the ground hardens, we move on to something else. I think that's that's what they're going to do. I mean, that seems to me the the way round. But at the moment, it gets you out of this immediate problem. You've had all of these negative stories appearing one after the other in the media. We've had all this big push from people like Samuel Charab, the Council for Foreign Relations. Um, um, some people in the military. Millie apparently has been saying things in the background about you know the need for negotiations to begin. All kinds of things like that. So you 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 shift the narrative away from that. You prevent negotiations. I think. In Kiev, there's a lot of people who just do not want to see negotiations, period. And it isn't just because they have an ideological investment in this war, which no doubt they do. It's because they know perfectly well that if there were negotiations, they would not survive in power. So you, you, you keep the narrative, you push the narrative back towards success, you don't talk about your failures, you don't talk about your failure to capture Rabotino at all. And in the meantime, and I think this is the really big thing and the very ominous thing, Ukraine is going to start launching, it's now I think become absolutely clear, this massive mobilisation. And the reason they're going to launch this mobilisation is not because they're winning, because if they were winning, they wouldn't need to launch a mobilisation. It is precisely because they're losing and they're becoming afraid that a Russian offensive is coming. So they need to get more people to make up for their losses and to build up reserves. And this talk that, you know, they're going to mobilise 200, 300, 500,000 men, nobody seems to be quite sure, but that there is going to be a, another huge mobilisation in the autumn and the winter. Yeah, but, uh, you know, the mobilization doesn't happen overnight. This, this takes time. And the, the, the collective West leadership, they, maybe not all the leaders in the collective West, but the top leaders, they, they must know the truth. I imagine, I, I hope they know the truth. Maybe they don't. Maybe guys like Schultz and, and, and even Biden, maybe they have... Uh, no idea what's what's going on, uh, but I imagine Sullivan knows what's going on. I imagine Blinken knows what's going on. Uh, I imagine Macron knows what's going on. You know, Kalubo was at a foreign minister's meeting, for example. He was at this foreign minister's meeting for the EU, and you can see that he's panicked. Yes. 
And, yes. you know, he told the EU foreign ministers, because they're talking about the failure of the counteroffensive, and, and he lost it. He yes, said, he you know, if you guys are so upset with the way we handle the counteroffensive, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he's like, if you guys are so upset with the way we handle things, pick up a gun and go to the front lines. That's yes, what he I basically know. told the, yeah. the foreign minister. I mean, he panicked. You can, you yeah. can see that, that, yeah. that he's panicking. But it also shows that the EU foreign ministers are, are at a very minimum aware of the failure of this counteroffensive. And, and with yes. it, it's tied in. All the money and the weapons, everything yeah. is tied into, yes. or was tied into the success of the counteroffensive. So, I mean, I understand they can hide it, but sooner or later, the truth is, is going to come out. And I imagine it's going to come out sooner rather than later. Yeah, well, absolutely, and that's that's of course the other thing because you can you can control the narrative for a little while, but you know you can't control it forever, uh, especially if we do get a Russian offensive. You're absolutely right. Mobilizing two, three, five hundred thousand men isn't going to solve your problems. It's going to make your problems worse because you can throw lots of untrained men into the battle lines, and that does make a difference. But ultimately, all you're doing if these men are not trained. If they're elderly or very young, if they're unfit to fight, if they're not properly equipped with modern weapons, all you're doing is you're creating more soldiers for the Russians to kill. I mean, that's what you do. I mean, it's a terrible, cynical thing, but that's what it looks like. You can perhaps buy yourself a few more weeks, but it's not going to solve your problems. It's going to make your problems worse. It's going to be a catastrophe. And I think this is the thing to always remember, a human catastrophe for Ukraine as well. So you can buy yourself time. But you know, unless you use that time and, you know, we do now have a space of time because the autumn period is coming. There are sported servers talk about a Russian offensive. There will, I think, be some kind of a Russian offensive. There's been too much talk about one for it not to happen. But I don't think this is the big knockout blow that the Russians are going to launch. I think that's more likely going to happen in the spring rather than now, because the Russians are building up their forces as well. I don't think they're ready for that yet. But, you know, you have a time period when you could sit down and talk. But the problem is, and we've discussed this in previous programmes, it seems as if the Western leaders still haven't yet accepted that the Russians are in no mood to talk and compromise on the basis of what the Russians will, will, will insist upon. I mean, there was another article by Anatole Levin in The Guardian, which for me highlighted the problem. Now, Anatole Levin has at times been one of the best and most realistic commentators about the diplomatic struggle and he's did some very good articles before the start of the fighting and he also did a good piece about you know Sarkozy's attempts to talk about home truths and things but he's still talking about freezing the war on the existing front lines and if that's what people are thinking it's not going to fly the Russians won't agree he says that if Putin decides this the Russians will go along with it but Putin is not going to decide this. And I think that on this issue, uh, Anatole Levin is out of touch with wider Russian opinion. Yeah, well, OK, let's stay with, uh, with the Russians a, a bit. And um, I, I want to ask you about the 
drone strikes. Every day, there are drones heading towards, towards Russia. Every day. And um, I think we, we, we would be... Uh, I, I think it's clear that these drones are disrupting yeah. uh, everyday life in Russia. Yes, yes. Right? I mean, how, how can they not? Um, for example, airports are constantly you know, having to shut down and flights are being delayed. So, so every day you're getting drone strikes. Obviously, NATO is providing surveillance and intelligence. You had a couple of months ago, uh, the Ministry of Defense said, if NATO strikes Russian territory, we're going to take out decision-making centers. Well, we're now a month, two months into, into the drone strikes, which are hitting or trying to hit Russian infrastructure. They, they did hit the airbase in, uh, in uh, uh, Pskov, Pskov, which, which is 30 kilometers away from Estonia. Yeah. Um, Zelensky said that he hinted at the fact that Ukraine did it. He hinted at it. He didn't say it, but he said we created a UAV that could travel 700 kilometers and it hit its target. Uh, Estonia has, has come out with denials. They say that they didn't do it. But look, there's no doubt that all of these drones are being coordinated to some extent, to some level, by NATO and the Pentagon. You know the, the the Ministry of Defense. They seem to have they they seem to have drawn a red line a couple of months ago. It doesn't look like they're enforcing that red line. And so every day you're getting these drone strikes. With every hundred drones, uh, no matter how good a job Russian air defense is doing, they're going to hit something. And you know they're going to hit infrastructure. They may hit a civilian target. I don't know. I, I hope not. But you know it's. It's just logic. If, if they keep on launching, something's going to get hit. And at a minimum, it's going to disrupt, disrupt Russian society. Uh, what do you think is happening here? Uh, the New York Times says that Ukraine is launching these drones so that they can keep the Ukraine population believing that they can strike at Russia and they can keep the population invested in the conflict. Uh, there's obviously uh, a part of of of, um, of motivation by by the collective West and by the Zelensky regime to to launch these drone strikes into Russia in order to to panic the the Russian population. But for the Russians, for for the Russian side, for Putin, Putin's government, I imagine they're going to have to handle this sooner rather than later because you know you can go a month with this, you can go two months with this, but after a while, the hard I'm I'm getting messages from like I'm listening to hardliners. On, on yeah. social media, and, and I'm getting the message from them. They're they're starting to say, "Look, what's going on here? You know, you, you this can't go on forever." And so I think there's pressure there as well. And anyway, I want your thoughts on yeah on, on uh, what I just said and and the strike on the airbase and and everything connected to to the drone strikes. Uh, I just uh, want to say that we we both have said and we both understand that on a military level, as far as the conflict is concerned, it doesn't change the dynamics of the conflict, but. It is having an effect on, on all sides. Absolutely. So the first thing to say is that, I mean, increasingly one gets the impression that Russian military facilities are being steadily hardened and that it's becoming very difficult increasingly for Ukraine to send drone strikes that are able to get through and do significant damage on the Russian military. So, I mean, this is not having an effect on the war. The reason the drones got through to Pskov is twofold. Firstly, this is an air base which is focused on air transport, um, you know, Illusion 76 um, aircraft and that kind of thing, which are transport planes. Um, uh, uh, it's not an air base that is directly involved in this conflict. I mean, they're not 
participating. Those aircraft are not participating in the conflict because they're transport aircraft. They're not bombers. They're not fighters. They're not anything like that. So one gets the sense it was some distance away from Ukraine, 800 kilometers. It's transport aircraft. It probably has been given lower priority in terms of hardening. So, you know, protecting, getting protection. So it was a softer target. Ukraine is finding it more difficult to strike harder targets. So it went for this particular airbase. So, you know, I think we need to understand that in military terms, this isn't working. Now, political pressure on the Kremlin to change course, to intensify the war. Will this will this have an effect? There's a number of things to say about this. Firstly, we've had articles starting to appear in the Western media about this, and this is from Western journalists. There was an article some weeks ago in The Guardian. There was a follow-up article in the Daily Telegraph. They've been asking people in Moscow, and the reporting which is coming back is that within Russia itself this is becoming normalized. In other words, Russian society is adjusting to the fact that there are these drone attacks. They're absorbing the fact. They're getting on with their lives. It causes a certain amount of disruption, but it's not so bad and so critical that it's changing the public mood and is changing the mood about the war. In fact, if anything, it might be hardening things a little. And I think the Kremlin doesn't want to escalate things. I think it probably calculates that part of the purpose of these drone attacks, certainly they are intended to improve morale in Ukraine, whether they really are is another matter, but anyway, to improve morale in Ukraine, to create good headlines in the West, to lower, reduce morale in Russia. But as it's not reducing morale in Russia, as the military conflict, as the military side of the war is unaffected from the Russian side, I think the Kremlin has decided that they're going to absorb this. They can absorb it. They can cope with these problems. It's not causing excessive amount of political pressure on them. It's, on the contrary, solidifying Russian society further behind the wall. Now, the big change is going to happen if one of these drones or some of these drones gets through and large numbers of Russian civilians are killed. Then the pressure on the Kremlin to respond and to respond in a big way is going to grow. That hasn't happened yet. And the the Kremlin must be hoping that it won't happen. But... If it does, well, the Kremlin has launched missile strikes on what they call decision-making centres. They apparently launched another one a few about a week ago on some some place in Kiev. They might start doing that to a greater extent. They don't want to go there. They don't want to escalate the war because from their point of view, the war is going well. They're winning. They don't want to create a, a pattern of escalation which might spiral out of control, conceivably affect diplomatic support for Russia in the outside world and enable the West to mobilise more resources and more backing for the war and for Ukraine. So 
this is the this is what the Kremlin is trying to do. They're they're trying to absorb these attacks. They're probably relieved that Russian society has been so stoical in response to them. But of course, if something big gets through, if as I said, you know, I don't want to discuss potential targets, but if say an apartment building is destroyed and Russian civilians get killed, well then of course the pressure will then be really on and we'll see what the Kremlin does. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with your, your assessment. I think they're, in general, they're, Russia is playing defense and they're absorbing whatever the collective West is throwing at them, whether it's on the front lines or whether it's with these drones. Uh, my, my thinking is, uh, you know, when, when the offensive uh, comes to a conclusive end, Yes. A counteroffensive. Uh, that's that's when Russia is going to to start thinking yeah. about the their, their response, not only to what's happening on the front lines, but I think that's where they're going to start thinking about their response to to the drones as well. Yes, I mean, do bear in mind the West is becoming increasingly frustrated with the Russians. I mean, we've had you know we discussed this recently about how Schultz and Macron are trying to call Putin and they're finding that he's not speaking to them. Um, it turns out that the White House has also tried to call the Kremlin and the Kremlin has refused to take the calls. There was this group of ex-diplomats from the Council of Foreign Relations who are trying to conduct Tier 1.5 talks in Moscow and they find that the, the Russians are not responding. And in fact, the Russians officially are denying that there's been any kind of talks at all. They say that there's just been informal contacts with people that they call scholars. So, in a sense, you can almost see these drone attacks, because you're absolutely right, by the way, they are, they are being promoted. They could not be conducted without help from the West. I mean, you need to be able to send drones in ways that avoid Russian radars and things of that kind so that they can get through. Ukraine doesn't have that kind of capability. It, it has to have come from the West. The West is telling the Ukraine where the radars are, the Russian radars are, so that the drones can slip round them. So what the West is trying to do is trying to get the Russians' attention, trying to sort of push the Russians into actually picking up the telephones. And in a way, a, a way of understanding this drone offensive and all of these other little things that are happening, you know, the attempts to send uh, speedboats to Crimea and to plant the flag there on a deserted beach. I mean, things of that, I mean, very weird things like that is they're trying, they're expressions, if you like, of frustration more than anything else. I think the Russians understand that, and that's why they're playing it very cool. But of course, to repeat again, if something really tragic happens, which it may, then of course um, the political pressure in Moscow will be on. All right. Uh, anything else that you want to add before we wrap up this this video? It, it, I, I've never. As I said, this is the most. Uh, this is the weirdest period um, of the war for me up to this point. I mean, it, it is very difficult to find a situation where, as I said, um, 
what I suspect are the actual realities of the fighting um, on the front lines diverges so completely from, um, you know, the way it's been, you know, the stories that are appearing in the West. The the Wall Street Journal article, the exclusive in the Wall Street Journal, is in some ways the, the one that, for me, gave it away because it talks about Ukraine piercing the front lines. And actually, when you read it, they're talking about an attack on this village of Verbove, which is not quite the same thing if you really um, if you really track it carefully. But this is something that has clearly been coordinated for some time because remember the first person to actually make the claim that the front lines had been pierced was not a Ukrainian. It was actually an American. It was none other than Mark Milley. He actually said that Ukraine has pierced the front lines in the fighting in Rabotina. And this is even before the Ukrainians themselves were admitting or claiming that they'd captured the village. So, you know, this concept of front lines, where the Russian front lines, the great fortified barriers are located, is being shifted all the time. And it's happening, as I said, increasingly to reflect political needs. Yeah, even using the word piercing doesn't really tell you much. You know, they're very, they're very clever yeah. with the headlines that they put out there. They're very clever yes. with their, their choice of words. Yes. I mean, if you just read the headlines, like if you're just scrolling through, through your news feed and just read the headlines, yeah. you collect the West Media, you, you would come to the conclusion that, that Russia is about to collapse, the Russian military. Front lines have completely collapsed. That's the conclusion that you would come out with. And you would think that Ukraine is, is pretty much uh, on the borders with Crimea at this point in time. I mean, they're very clever with their choice of piercing the front lines, uh, making progress towards Melitopol. It's, yes. Yes. Pure deception. Yes, it's not. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, if, if 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 something really big had happened, you know, they would not be using words like Pierce. They would talk about, you know, a major breakthrough, something of that kind. And of course, it's 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 not. And you know, when you go to the body of these articles, I, I'm talking about the big newspapers. I'm not talking about you know tabloids like Bild Zeitung or the British tabloids. You go to the big ones, as you correctly say, the, the actual content of the articles always turns out to be a lot more um, um, a lot more conditional than the headlines suggest but the, 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 the weird the most weird thing of all is as I said it's about Rabotino at the end of the day because um, I mean it, this is several times that the Ukrainians say they've captured Rabotino and you know by the way you know you Russian Sources have made similar claims. I mean, you know, back in October, they were claiming that they'd captured Marinka, for example, which they hadn't done. And they still haven't. (laughs) But at least with the Russians, we do eventually get a retraction. With the Ukrainians, we never do. They still haven't admitted that they've lost a Bakhmut. No, no, or Solidar, for example. So, I mean, that, that tells you everything. Anyway, uh, com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, uh, Telegram, uh, Rockfin, and Twitter. And go to the Durad shop, 10% off. Use the code GOODDAY. Take care.